Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Here we are with the Principles of Performance podcast. This is episode number 42. I'm your host, Eric Degatti, along with my co-host, Mike Perry. Mike, welcome this morning. It's good to see you. And we have an amazing guest today. Um, we're excited to, to have Christine on. And, um, you know, up here in Boston, it's another rainy day, man. Like, it's been raining, like, every single day for the last, like, three to four weeks. And with, with sports starting up in the spring, it's – I'm getting a little sick of it. But besides that, I'm not going to complain because, man, eh, no one's going to listen anyway. So, but we're good to go here. We're good to go here. All right. So, let's get rolling. Let's tell you a little bit about uh, Christine. Uh, she's an award-winning journalist that writes about sports, science, health, and specifically the intersection of sports science and women athletes. And, and she's got a new book that I've been reading and really enjoying. It's called Up to Speed. Um, and it's the groundbreaking science of women athletes. And so um, she's done feature reporting and, and profiles and essays on, in the Washington Post, Outside Magazine, Runner's World, Family Circle, Self, Eating Well, Vice, ESPN, W, among others. Uh, she's got her uh, bachelor's uh, from Columbia and her master's from Harvard. Um, both of those schools really wanted me, Mike, and I had all the intangibles. I just, it was my grades that kept me out. Um, so, um, same, same story over here, just different school, man. <laughs> uh, but she's, she's coming to us from Brooklyn, New York, or as my relatives, you say, Brooklyn, as they, uh, and, uh, she lives there with her husband and, and her, her two sons. And she's a lifelong athlete herself. Uh, I know she's, she's had some injuries along the right way, unfortunately that I had to read about, but, uh, she still likes to run, do yoga, hike, swim, surf, very active person, but I'm really looking forward to diving into the, the science of women athletes and it's some really fascinating stuff I learned from the book. So welcome, Christine. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Cool. So, so after I dove into the book a little bit, you, you know, you, you don't get far in before you quickly realize how uh, misrepresented and underrepresented women are in sports science, uh, and especially in the research. And you cite a lot of reasons for this, and, and not necessarily all of them are, are you know, uh, come off as being done with malintent, just sometimes even that of convenience. But can you kind of go through some of the reasons for the oversight? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the latest statistics are, you know, in sports science studies between 2014 and 2020, only 6% of those studies focus on women exclusively. So, I mean, that's not too long ago, right? It's only a couple of years back. Um, and that's, to me, was just a shocking number. I was like, I, as a journalist, I come across these studies all the time. And I will admit, I, 
you know, kind of look at the methodology, kind of looked at the at the population, but I didn't really think about it so much. Um, but as I started reporting more and talking to more athletes and talking to more experts in the field, really realizing how little we do know about female physiology. And so I'd ask them, right? Like, I was like, why is this? What's, what's going on? And for the most part, um, pretty much 100%, everyone would, would answer that well, women are it, women are complicated to study, and largely because of our menstrual cycles and our hormones. Because you know, within women or in female bodies, the hormones fluctuate up and down, and you know, kind of all around, right, throughout the course of the month. And when you are doing something like research on, and you want to find out the impact of a specific intervention, or you want to understand how a certain molecule works, or you know, a certain molecular mechanism, you want to try to eliminate as much noise from that experiment as possible, so you can isolate what really matters, right? So it makes sense that when scientists are studying, they want to eliminate as many confounding variables as possible. And so this hormonal, this like flux, constantly fluctuating hormonal background is, you know, they considered it a confounding variable, something that added a lot of noise in the data that made it then hard for them to figure out what was going on. So, I mean, to your point, right? Like, I don't think that there was any malintent. I don't think any one scientist is being like, ha ha ha, you know, you know, we're not going to study women because I don't want to study women. But I think it's because this is how the methodology developed when the field of sports science first developed, because, you know, the field really came up back in the early 1900s, 1920s and stuff. Um, and at that point, if you thought about it too, it's mostly men who were leading these studies. And then if they were looking to study athletes, it was mostly men, right? Who were athletes at that time who were competing at this level in which that they wanted to examine. So sure, it made sense. That's the methodology that they came up with. That's what they taught their students. That's what their students then taught to their students. Um, and it kind of just goes, you know, there's that trickle down effect. Um, some of the other factors that people um, mentioned, and it's tied to this, right, is really the issue around funding too. So who's paying for this? Um, when you think about sports science and sports performance, you know, for us, it's really important as people who are really active, but when in the larger scheme of things, it's not as important, say, as like public health research or understanding cardiovascular disease or something like that, which has a greater impact on people. So the funders who are who are um, putting money into this tend to be, you know, institutions like NCAA or you know NFL or you know you have brands like Gatorade and stuff like that. Um, and if you think about it, right, NCAA, <laughs> their their big sports are football men's basketball, um, that's what they want to invest in because that's the the population of athletes that they care about. And similarly, obviously with NFL, it's, you know, it's a men's sport. Um, so again, so you you start to see where, where that money starts to trickle down and where that priority is placed. Um, some of the other factors, right? Like I think we talked about just a little bit is the, the population of athletes out there. So you have more men in general, who are competing in collegiate athletes who are, you know, in the semi, in the elite levels or the semi-pro in the pro leagues um, that researchers could pull from. And so up in, I'd probably say up until recently, it's been harder to um, find a similar population of, right, like this elite level of, of women athletes until probably recently, right, when, when there has been such a, a much bigger influx of girls and women into sport. 
Um, but yeah, so there's a lot, I think a lot of factors that come into play. I mean, I could go on and on <laughs> about this. Well, we, we, we are going to. And so, uh, you know, I pulled some, some numbers from the book and you mentioned that. So this was interesting. The number of women playing in sports has increased 600% since the seventies. Uh, the first Olympic games was in Paris, uh, in 1900, when they allowed women to, to participate and only 22 of the 997 athletes were women compared to Tokyo in 2021, where women were nearly 49% of the competitors. So that leads to my next question is we know that demand for, for research, like many things, like you mentioned is probably driven by money uh, mostly. And, and so does this increased market share of women's sports mean that we should expect a commensurate rise in research for women uh, in the future? Yeah. I mean, I really hope so. Right. Because if, if we really care about growing women's sport and supporting girls and women in these active pursuits so that they can compete at these higher levels, we do need that research to understand how to best support them. Right. From, and not only that, how to how to keep them from being injured, because if if they're your I don't want to say commodity, but kind of right, like if they're your your um, what's what makes your sport and what you're relying on, you need them to be healthy. And if you think about right now, even just in women's soccer, there's such a like there are so many of these women, you know, at the professional level at in this lead up to the World Cup, right? that are now out with traumatic knee injuries, with ACL tears. So if we want to keep um, helping women excel at this level, if we want to, you know, yes, build up the sport, build up the, the base, make it something that's viable, you got to you gotta invest on the research end of things. And I think that that's something that is kind of overlooked, right? We talk a lot about like market share and media and all of that, which 100% is so important, right, in terms of, getting more exposure, getting, you know, people to view it and support it. Um, but we also need this investment on this side of things too, on the research, on the science, on the medical, you know, the medical side of things as well. So before you jump in, Mike, you know, something that, that hit me as I was kind of reading and, and doing the research for this was talking about, as you said, the preparation of athletes. And I know statistics show like with ACL injuries, I think it's one in four elite female athletes should have a chance of, of having a major knee surgery. And I saw it, I, I was the uh, strength and conditioning coordinator for a women's professional um, softball team. You mentioned the MPF in the book. I was for the New York team. I was their strength coach for one year. And it, the, the number showed we had four out of the 16 girls on the roster had had at least one major knee surgery. Now, when you talk about ACLs in our field, what Mike and I do is, is strength and conditioning coaches. You know, there's a lot of things that they blame for that, whether it's mm -hmm. hormonal stuff, whether it's the Q angle of the hips and wider hips to the knees and so forth. But sometimes I think it's just unfortunately neglect in terms of the preparation. Um, and I see it even at the highest levels. And, and I've had, you know, division one, female athletes come to me with their summer training packet. Like I have a lot of my athletes come. And when I look at them, it's like, it's almost like they just scratched out where it said football and just said, <laughs> here, do this. And so there was nothing really to accommodate the needs of the female athlete. And so I know in our field that it's something that that's very, uh, under, uh, underappreciated in terms of how it is. Cause it's always been so a lot of strength and conditioning has always been so football dominant. For sure. Yeah. I mean, to your point, right? Like the number of knee injuries, it's something that doctors and researchers noticed in the late eighties, I want to say like early nineties, they really start started paying attention to this disparity. But in 20, 30 years since then, 
those numbers haven't really changed, right? So it's there. I think that there's been a lot more education and awareness that this is an issue, but we're still missing something here that these numbers aren't changing, but the numbers, if I remember correctly, appear to be, have gotten better or, you know, there isn't as many injuries on the, on the boys and men's side, right. As compared to girls and women. So I think that there are a lot of issues. And like you said, we often point to things that have to do with the women's body, right. The Q angle, the hormones and all of that, but that's kind of a, I mean, frankly, like pretty crappy way to think about, like as, <laughs> as someone who is currently nursing their third ACL tear, like it's pretty crappy to think like, oh, it's my, there's nothing I can do about it. Right. There's nothing I can change about how wide my hips are, or what my Q angle is, or, you know, how my hormones are fluctuating. There's nothing I can do about that. Um, but to your point, I think that there, we miss a lot when we don't consider the larger environment in which girls and women are socialized and encouraged even to participate in sport, right? Whether or not girls are encouraged at a younger age to get into the weight room, because we do think of strength, right? As an injury risk factor, because men and boys tend to have more muscle mass. It tends to, you know, considered to be more protective against injury. Um, but are girls and women encouraged to go into the gym and lift, you know, and, and starting at uh, you know, at a younger age, like in at the high school level, when they are going through this tremendous change and their bodies are changing and they're trying to like figure out what the heck is going on, how to, how to control their bot their new bodies. And that's when we, we do see that spike in ACL tears. So how can we help girls to learn how to make their bodies more resilient and hundred percent, right? Strength training is a big part of that and, and teaching them how to move their bodies, how to, how to be more aware of their movements, how to build that muscle to support them through that is a big part of it. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that you, you were talking about, um, you know, with, with female athletes in general, and, and I love the fact that you were basically like, Hey, look, you know, it's, we've got the Q angle of the hip and, and there's the, hor the hormones and, and, like those really can't be controlled, especially with the hip, obviously hormones are, you know, a little whole different conversation, but, um, it's kind of a cop-out. Like you said, it's like, well, so you're basically telling me this is what I'm dealt with and I have to deal with it. Like, that's kind of like BS. Right. And I love the fact that, you know, it's, I think it's just lack of exposure for a lot of these younger athletes. And one of the things that I've seen, especially in the soccer world is, um, it's still very, very reactive when it comes to mm. ACLs and knee injuries. Right. I mean, I can't tell you how many young athletes that I've trained and they're doing well. And of course, you know, one girl on the team or two girls on the team do their ACL. And then they're like, we should really start lifting weights. <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, I was telling you that, you know, two, three years ago. And I told you that that was going to be the better option and the better route, as opposed to just playing soccer 12 months out of the year. But now you're listening to me because you missed a year because, you know, you blew your ACL. And I'm not saying that just lifting weights is going to automatically fix that issue. But look, at the end of the day, stronger athletes tend to be a little bit more resilient, a little bit more durable. And from what I've seen and doing this yeah. for 20 years, the athletes that are proactive and men and women um, do a little bit better because they're just more durable and they've trained their body to withstand the wear and tear. So I love the fact that, you know, you've, you've brought that up because it was something to be honest, I didn't even think about. And uh, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. But you know, one of the things that um, you've already sort of touched on this a little bit, but um, obviously people are taking like the information they get from men and just saying, we'll just apply it to females. And we know that that's absolutely, absolutely not the case, but are there any sort of significant things that you have seen in the data when it comes to men and women? 
So this is something that I've been thinking a lot about because I think when I first started working on this book or thinking about this book, I thought that somewhat naively, right? That it's, if we've been studying men all this time and we haven't been studying women, well, then everything we need to do or how we approach working with women needs to be completely different, right? Like our needs aren't met. Like it needs to be like these two separate buckets. Um, but I think the thing that I've come to realize through research and reporting this book is that there actually is a lot more overlap than, you know, we might assume or really realize. And again, that's not to say there are hundred percent are sex-based differences, obviously, but those differences also exist on a spectrum, right. In terms of, um, how much they may affect anyone or one person versus another. Um, so I think, you know, for example, I would say we've, we know a lot and have done a lot of research around something like periodization of training. And I think, you know, most people can confidently say, you know, that principle, that idea is going to apply pr pretty similarly between men and women, right? That's, that's how our bodies kind of adapt to training. But I think that there are other areas where there might be more subtle nuances that are different between men and women. And I think I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, I think the injury pieces is one of it because of just the anatomical and potentially biomechanical differences, right? Because of the way that our skeletons are structured um, might mean, yeah, you do different kinds of, of prehab and, you know, kind of exercises to really help make those bodies a little bit more resist resilient. There might be, you know, some movement patterns that are, you know, quote unquote, a little bit could potentially be more problematic, right? In when you see it in women versus men. Um, but I think that um, on the whole, so much of this is individual too, in that um, we all have our own genetics and injury history and, you know, risk profile and all of that. And I think that what it means is that we take these general principles. And obviously, you know, things need to be tailored to the individual to what circumstances they're coming into this with. Um, and I think for women, a big piece of that is, is understanding that a women's, a woman's physiology. So things like her menstrual cycle and her hormones, things like, you know, her potential, um, you know, she might be at more risk for bone stress injuries or something like that, that those factors are accounted for when you are looking at any one individual athlete that we're not because for so long we've just been bucketing it right like breasts and ovaries and uterus and like hormones those are <laughs> those have to do with like reproduction we don't need to think about that so we put them off to the side but i think what what i hope people start to think about is like no they're they're equally as important part of our bodies and how we function and perform as something like muscle mass, as something as like, when you think about nutrition, as you think about, you know, training and all of that, that it is a key part of that equation. Well, one that stood out to me was you talk about just even supplementation. Uh, you mentioned beetroot juice and you say, well, look, women's biochemistry is different than men's and how they process nitric oxide, oxide and, and derive the benefits from something like that may be completely different than what a man would experience, right? Yeah. So a lot of the research on beetroot juice and how that, you know, could potentially be beneficial has been done on men. And it, it, you know, the research seems to suggest that women uh, metabolize it differently. So we might be better at it, but 
again, the question is, is, well, what does that mean? So we've identified that potential difference, but we don't know yet what that means in the longer term. Does that then mean that men benefit more from the beetroot supplementation versus women? Because we're already kind of maxed out, right? Like potentially at our ability to metabolize it. So if men, you know, supplement, does that then mean they will get more bang for their buck out of it? Or is it the opposite? Or is it because women are so good at metabolizing it that we can make better use of that supplement? But right now, you know, they've, we haven't really asked the question and we don't know, but I think that's, that's part of it. And part of why it is important to do more research is because it's only by starting to ask some of those questions and identify some of those potential differences that we even know that, you know, that there might be other opportunities out there on the table that we're not even paying attention to. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I, I just love the fact that you're even talking about this stuff because it, it makes so much sense now, now that I'm processing a little bit more, I'm like, yeah, that it makes all, it makes all the sense in the world. And I think a key point that you were talking about is just individuality. Yes, there's going to be overlap, but we can't neglect the individual component of each person that we work with. So I love that you brought that up. So let's discuss the female athlete triad and uh, not only how it's, it's somewhat misunderstood, but at the same time, let's talk about the impact that it can have on female athletes. Sure. So the female athlete triad is a condition that was, you know, really came to light in again, the eighties and nineties when doctors and researchers started to notice that for some girls and women who appeared to exercise a lot, there seemed to be this connection between, um, eating disorders or disordered eating, or at that time it was, you know, strict eating disorders, um, menstrual cycle dysfunction. So they would either not have a period or their period would be, you know, abnormal and, um, bone health. And so they would notice that, you know, the, the bone mass of these girls and women would be pretty low, like kind of bordering on osteoporosis, right. For, and that's, kind of concerning for, for kids who are, you know, for teenagers and for young women. Um, and so when they looked into this, they really realized that, um, you know, that there's this connection between, um, between these, these different, um, these different conditions. So the, the, the nutrition and the eating, the bone health and the menstrual cycle. And it was something that people hadn't really noticed before. Right. Because, um, I think a they, you know, a lot of women would be coming to their doctors, you know, with bone stress injuries and not really understanding what was going on. And what was fascinating was that these, these researchers really identified the fact that it had to do with nutrition. Ultimately, it didn't have to do with the fact that they were exercising a lot. Cause I think that again, there's this narrative in history that, you know, exercise is really bad for women's bodies. It's bad for our reproductive system. Um, so I think there was a tendency to say that, oh, they're exercising too much. That's why they're, you know, they're not getting their periods. But what the researchers identified was that it really comes down to nutrition and the amount of energy your body has to actually do the things that it needs to do. So if it's not getting enough energy, um, it's going to start shutting down non-essential systems and reproduction. The reproductive system is one of those. So it would start to shut that down and you'd start to see these hormonal uh, deficiencies. The reason that this is so important, I think, again, comes back to the fact that when that reproductive system gets to sh starts to shut down, the hormones start to, you know, start to shut down as well. And those hormones like estrogen and progesterone are so important 
for things other than reproduction. So it's there, you know, estrogen is critical for bone building. It's critical for muscle gain and muscle mass, right? It's there are estrogen receptors throughout our bodies. And so when that starts to happen, it's not just that, oh, you don't get your period. It's the fact that there are all these downstream consequences that affect your bone health. And like I said, it could lead to, you know, a greater risk for, bo for bone stress injuries. I think it's, it's something like you're four and a half, five times more likely to, to have a bone stress injury. Um, it leads to things like early onset osteoporosis, which again is very troubling because especially in these year, these teenage adolescent years, or young adult years, that's when you're building all of your bone mass. And if you don't reach your full potential there, you can't gain it, right? Like you have what you have and you, you just have to try to maintain it. You can't put on more bone mass. So, and, you know, there are also cardiovascular issues in terms of like, you know, some of these women had profiles that looked like they were, you know, at risk for heart, heart disease and frankly were at risk for heart disease. Um, so it became really troubling. Um, and, you know, I think also one other thing on top of that too, is like when you are mixing this also with like an eating disorder or disordered eating, like eating disorders are a mental health condition that has the highest mortality rate, right? So it's not only dangerous for your, I mean, it's dangerous, right? For your entire health. So the researchers kind of identified this um, and there's been more research in recent years that's kind of expanded this definition of female athlete triad to something that's called relative energy deficiency in sport. And they've identified that it's not just, you know, the bone health and the, and the um, menstrual health that's, that's affected, but yeah, you're talking about gut health. You're talking about mental health. You're talking about cardiovascular health, all this whole constellation of things that can be impacted simply because, um, you're not getting enough energy in your body. Um, and obviously all of those things have really real effects on your performance and training too. You're not going to perform as well. You're not going to train as well. You're not going to adapt to your training. You're not going to recover. Um, so it's been at least in, um, so I tend to cover more of like the endurance sports. So at least in that community, I know that there's been a, a much more concerted effort to get information out there to people about this importance of just fueling your, fueling your body well and consistently um, so that you can prevent some of these detriments. I think this is also a really interesting case in which, um, you know, the research really did start looking with looking at women and this this condition that appeared to be very prevalent in girls um, and young women. Um, and they've realized that this is not something that just affects women. This is something that affects men too, um, in terms of not fueling your body enough, being in this low energy availability state. And there are, right, like detriments and negative impacts that affect men as well. So I think that this is, this is a case in which, you know, this is something that we would not necessarily have paid attention to without that first research on women. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guest every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. What confounds this a little bit when you talk about energy balance and nutrition and, and diet 
is as someone who consults for high school teams. And if I'm working with a, uh, a high school girl soccer team and I have to broach the, the subject of nutrition is that I almost have to it, it start off by disarming them and, and compartmentalize and say, we're talking about nutrition for your health and for your performance. Because immediately their first thought is because of social pressures, because mm -hmm. of body image issues, immediately they're thinking about for weight loss. And sometimes those are a paradox in what they want to do to you know, look good in their prom dress or to, to be able to, to, you know, meet a certain image that they want to meet and then be able to still be able to perform in the field sometimes is, is, is contradictory. And so that makes it a little bit more challenging from the sociological, psychological side of things. A hundred percent. And, you know, I think it is very much amplified at that age, right. In high school, when not again, bodies are changing. Everyone is so self-conscious and just trying to figure themselves out. That's when a lot of the pressure is, right? I think to look a certain way too. Um, I think this pressure obviously kind of continues throughout throughout life, but you know, particularly in this adolescent age. And it's we're putting girls in this impossible position, right? Because they're fed all this information about how they should look, what an athlete should look like. They're looking at all these photos of professional athletes and, you know, thinking that that's what they need their bodies to look like in order to perform well, when those bodies, those are adult women, right, who have grown and matured and gone through their whole development cycle. They're not teenage girls or even girls in their early 20s, right, who are not finished developing yet. Um, so I think it's, it's, it is this, this disconnect, right, between what we think we need to look like versus, you know, just the just the basic facts of you need to feed your body. And especially for girls and women, our bodies perform better when we are fed, when we have enough nutrition, because that's when the body feels safe, frankly, and is then able to take care of everything else that's going on. Um, there was, I saw, I'm not on TikTok very much, but I did see this one video posted by Anna Hall, who's a track and field athlete. And she's, I mean, she's a phenomenal athlete, right? Like she's, she's, elite. She performed so well. Um, and she's sitting in her car, basically pleading with people is like, just stop commenting on women's bodies. Right. Like, cause she had posted a video, I think of her high jumping. Um, and you know, all the comments uh, on it were just horrible saying things like, Oh, she's too muscular. She's too this, she's too that. And it's like, I need this body to do the things that I need it to do to, to perform at the level that I want to, to perform at. Um, and I, it doesn't need to look a, a certain way in order to do that. Right. And so it, it, there's such dissonance around that. So it's kind of circling back and tying together with the, the female athlete triad is uh, it goes beyond just, hey, you know, I hurt my knee or I got a stress fracture or I get more ankle sprains that it can uh, kind of matriculate into much bigger um, and, and almost near tragic things. Like you talk about the story of Mary Kane, who was a legendary track athlete and how her life can kind of spiral downwards because she was just kind of trying to be forced as a square peg into a round hole of men's training, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and plus she was at this age, she was, 17, I think. I mean, she, she was, she wasn't out of adolescence yet. Her body was still developing. And, you know, during puberty and during this period of time, you're, 
I read somewhere, it's like your body is, is growing and developing almost as much as it is right when it's like an infant or a toddler, like there's tremendous change going on at that point of time, but she's seven, 17 years old. She's like just out of high school and they are training her like she is, you know, a, a man in her twenties, in her mid twenties. Right. Um, and that's not what her body needed at that point. Um, and it, there was a lot of comments about weight gain, um, you know, public weigh-ins and public shaming about her weight that again, feeds into this idea that you need to look a certain way or thinking that if I just lose some weight that I will perform better and look hundred percent body composition does is a factor, right. In some of these sports, but it's not the only factor that matters. Um, and so, you know, it led her down this path where, you know, she was restricting food, you know, she wasn't getting her period. She had a number of injuries and bone stress injuries, um, you know, mental health wise, like her mental health deteriorated, you know, she thought about, you know, dying by suicide and all of this stuff that it's, it's, it's crazy, right. Like to think that this is what we I know not intentionally put people through, but this is what some of the systems around sport can encourage and lead to again, like not on purpose. I'm sh I hope I'm sure, you know, but kind of inadvertently. Yeah. Now you mentioned already, there's obvious, you know, biological, anatomical, physiological differences between, you know, men and women athletes. But you also also mentioned earlier, kind of, there is some overlap. Uh, you call it the kind of messy middle in that Venn diagram-like kind of uh, overlap of where there is some similarity between men and women, but we don't know where those edges are, do we? No, we don't. Like, and like I said, just because this this field of research is so young, we I mean we have I think a pretty good sense of where those edges might be around the men's circle, right? Um, but where that might what the women's circle looks like, or even if it is a circle and how much of that overlap is, we don't know yet because the, you know, the field is just starting, I think, to gain traction and momentum. And again, this is not to say there's been tremendous scientists and researchers in the past who have been trying to do this work, but I think we're, we're at this tipping point now where people are starting to recognize that this is really important. We should be looking into this more and hopefully again, by, as we start to ask these questions more, we'll get a better sense of what's going on. So as we're having this whole conversation, uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, lit up a, a spark in my mind to think about last, uh, last show we just had on, uh, Don Moxley, who's a sports scientist at, at Ohio state. And a lot of his work is in looking at heart rate variability and recovery. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I'm thinking, okay, well, if we're so dialed in now with the science of looking at stress management and, and in not overtraining and so forth, and looking at the impacts of things like sleep and stress and so forth on our physiological systems and, and neurological systems. And then when you factor in the fact that you have this, this roller coaster that your physiology and chemistry goes through as, as a female, that how much that's going to impact recovery and how we have to be even that much more sensitive to things like that in terms of being careful of not overtraining, when to know how to push and, and when and how much to push. And sometimes it's not always convenient if I'm working with a team that, you know, everybody's on the same schedule. If we have games or matches or meets and, and so forth. So it gets, it's got to get really tricky. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of the things 
that will be interesting to see, right? As since there are so many more wearables out there now that people can track more of this information for themselves to understand better what their baseline is or what their trend lines look like. And with that information, you can then see, or at least, you know, get a better sense of how your body, how your body feels and performs and, and reacts right through, throughout a, a month, say a month, um, so that it doesn't feel so out of control or, you know, out of your control, um, in the sense that you don't know what's going on, because I know for me personally, that's, I would often feel that like if I felt flat or if like, I'm, you know, felt great on a run, you know, a, two days ago and then went out again, like felt flat. Like I would feel like there's something wrong with me, right. That I wasn't, maybe, you know, I wasn't doing something. I should be pushing harder. I should change this up or whatever it is, um, which might be true, which might be part of it. Um, but there are probably a lot of other factors that fed into it. It's like, yes, you know, things that we all think about in terms of like sleep and recovery, but then it also made me think about, oh, maybe I should pay a little bit of attention to where I am in my menstrual cycle too. Maybe that has an impact. Maybe it doesn't, but that's another piece of data for me to then evaluate what's going on with myself and with my body. Um, so then I can make some better decisions and so that I can, um, even just give myself a little bit more grace too, like when the workouts are crappy and don't feel great and I'm not performing how I, how I think I should be. So, um, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I was sort of thinking about when you were talking about all this is, so I work with, um, a, a lot of female athletes and we're talking from the age of, you know, 12 or 13 up to professional fighters, uh, and mixed martial arts for females. And, um, you know, and, and being brutally honest, you know, working with high school athletes and, you know, training females and, and talking about all the hormonal and menstrual cycle stuff as a, as a male can be tough. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I think early on in my career, I was very uncomfortable talking about that because it's, it is, a, it's kind of a, it's a subject that again, not a lot of people talk about in general. And then if you put a male with a female and, and, and it's tough to navigate, but one of the things that, um, was a really unique experience for me is as I started to work with professional fighters that were women, um, and getting ready for a fight, getting ready for this big event, um, you know, them educating me on kind of how they're feeling throughout their menstrual cycle. And I think it was a, a really, it was a truly an educational experience because it was just like, wow, like I knew, but I didn't really know. It was one of those things, right? Because it's like, okay, you're tired. Like you're going to be tired for a week. And that's kind of, honestly, as a young coach, that's kind of what I thought. Like you're just a little bit more tired. So just go a little bit lighter. And it's just like, well, that's, that's a part of it, but, um, it's only a piece of the puzzle. And, um, a little off topic, but how, how would you suggest that younger male coaches become more comfortable and more educated on this information without sounding creepy or unprofessional? Because I think for a lot of male athletes, they don't want to touch that. Oh, hundred percent. Right. And, and this bears out in the research too, when athletes are asked about this, you know, absolutely. That's one of the barriers to talking about this is having male coaches and having male staff. Um, because they don't, we don't feel comfortable about it. Um, I think it, again, that kind of goes back to this idea that we just associate the menstrual cycle with reproduction and sex, right. And that's, that makes it a taboo topic. So we don't want to talk about it, but I think some things that, um, male coaches and younger male coaches could do is one, just 
educating yourself as a first step, um, even just understanding what the cycle is, um, what some of those hormonal fluctuations might be and, and potentially how that might impact someone in terms of how they feel, um, and what are some of the common symptoms? Just having, I think that base of knowledge is really helpful, right? So you're not starting from just putting your athlete on the spot, being like, Hey, tell me all about it. <laughs> tell me all about what's going on. <laughs> and you know, yeah. Hey, by the way, I've noticed this. It's like, yeah, you're not going to yeah. approach it that way. <laughs> and, and that's it's just a hundred percent one surefire way to get someone to like clamp their mouth and never talk to you about this again. <laughs> right. So I think just educating yourself about it and why having a regular and consistent cycle, if, you know, assuming that they're not on hormonal birth control, why having this regular cycle is important. Um, and what are some of the red flags that might come up for something like relative energy deficiency in sport and female athlete triad, um, just so it's on your radar. So it's something that you think about. And then I think in terms of just talking about it, it, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't necessarily think it needs to be like, Hey, let's all have a sit down, a formal sit down and yeah. talk about the menstrual cycle. Like we can let's talk make about... it even more uncomfortable than it exactly. Is. And, it, and it's, it's not, it's not talking about the cycle in and of itself. I think that from, at least from what I've heard from other coaches um, in, in terms of what's the way that the message comes across best to their athletes is couching it in terms of this is why it's important to your sport and your performance, right? Make, because if these are athletes, you know, they care about how they perform. They care about their sport. They want to play. Mm -hmm. um, and, and couching it in those terms of this is, this is how this is going to help, you know, paying attention to this, or at least like keeping an eye towards it might help you potentially perform better, right? Or at least feel better when you're training sometimes. Um, if you notice what some of those symptoms are, and then we can mitigate those. We can do things to help if you're feeling more soreness. Like we can, yeah, then pay, let, like let's pay more attention to recovery. Let's look at some of, you know, potentially some of the nutrition stuff, right? If you are more tired, then yeah, maybe we'll back off on the intensity a little bit in this, in this day or two, um, that we consistently see, or you consistently see that you are feeling fatigued either before your cycle, before your period, after your period, whatever period of time it is. Um, but you can then anticipate some of those factors. Absolutely. Um, Eric, any other things you want to add in before we keep on going or no, you keep rolling. All right. So um, let's talk about the three critical stages across the timeline that, that, that females and women face, because I feel like it's, it's something that'll sort of, uh, as we get towards the end of the podcast, sort of wrap us up a little bit, but let's talk a little bit about that because I feel like it's super important and we really do need to discuss that. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of talk about adolescence, pregnancy and the postpartum period, and then the menopause transition as these kind of critical times, right. In a woman's life, um, that we all go through <laughs> and experience. Um, but those can be critical times in terms of our relationship with physical activity and sport. And we can see that it changes potentially during those periods of time. So, I mean, we've talked a bit about adolescence in terms of bodies changing and, just hips widening, growing breasts, your horm like there's more horm hormones fluctuating and it really changes how 
a girl relates to her body and can feel in her own body, right? It feels a little out of control, frankly. And so it's no wonder that, you know, they might feel a little clumsy or awkward. Um, you know, I know gymnasts go through this period where they can't, you know, they lose some of the skills that on, on the apparatus that they've been able to do for like years and years, right? Like they, their body awareness is just different. And so it makes it harder to do those skills. Um, so I think just knowing that this there is this period of adjustment that happens that you just need to maybe back off a little bit um, and give folks the time to adapt to their new body and not feel frustrated. Because again, if you're just doing the same thing over and over and over again, and you're not getting the results, you might be getting injured. You get frustrated because you can't do these stupid skills on the uneven bars. It just breeds frustration. And we see that yeah. about, you know, the statistic is something like 51% of girls leave sport by the age of 17, which is like mind boggling to me, right? So can we, are there things that we can do during that period of time that help smooth that transition for them, right? And in the same way, I think with pregnancy and the postpartum period, our bodies, again, go through this tremendous change during pregnancy and having a child. Um, but we haven't really studied it. Um, there are really not very good guidelines, evidence-based guidelines right now um, for what type of activity to do during pregnancy. I mean, it's pretty general. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, just do this. You know, it's the same general guidelines. What is it? It's like 150 minutes of moderate, moderate physical activity. But what if you are at, are at a higher level or, you know, that's kind of your baseline and you want to do a little bit more? What how much vigorous activity can you do? Um, we haven't really, really looked into that yet in a good way. And similarly with the postpartum period, there's like pretty much no guidelines, frankly, to help <laughs> women navigate through this period. You know, the only thing that they, you know, we say is like, you go to your doctor at your six week postpartum visit and your doctor gives you medical clearance, right? And they say, go, you're good. You can go ahead and do, you know, resume whatever you want to do, right? You can, you can start exercising again. But the reality is, is that six week period is really just clear, like medical clearance. Like that's your tissue healing, like them looking at you to say, there's no, there's no major problems here. There's no infection here. It's not to say that your tissue is now ready to, um, to withstand that, that vigor from, from sport, from things like running or, you know, anything kind of more vigorous. Right. Um, because like I said, your body changes so tremendously during pregnancy, like everything's stretched out, like your neuro neuromuscular control is like all off and non-existent, right? You gotta, you gotta reestablish those patterns first and help your body come back together before you start layering more stress on top of it. Um, so we see again that this is a period of time where a woman's relationship to sport and physical activity can really change. Um, either people falling off of, you know, the physical activity wagon. Um, we see with, it used to be with a lot of professional athletes, that's when their career ended, right? Because we weren't supporting them through this period of time. So there's been a lot more work in recent years um, trying to get better information out there to women in terms of how to 
really go about this in a smart and gradual way. Um, and that despite what media tells us and what celebrities might show us, like we're not all going to get our pre-baby body back, you know, in like six weeks um, or ever maybe, right? Um, and that's okay. So th yeah, that's a, it's a really tricky period of time because I think people think that, oh, you, you know, having a baby is like what the female body is meant to do. So of course, we're just going to heal magically as well too. But no, it's like any injury in a way, right? You have to gradually build back and build your tolerance for that stress of exercise. And then so with the menopause transition, I mean, there's really not, I mean, I feel like we can, we're going down the spectrum. There's really nothing <laughs> around there. There's um, very little research that looks at this in terms of, you know, outside of just a public health concern around exercise. Um, and there's starting to be more interest in this area. But again, this is a period of time where the hormone, your menstrual cycle is starting to wind down. So those hormones are starting to decline. I mean, they kind of go haywire again, up and down crazy, and then they decline. But as a result of that, your physiology is literally changing. And so the way that you feel when you exercise, the way that you respond to that exercise, of course, is going to change. But again, we don't really um, recognize that. And so again, you know, I, I can you know speak from experience, like I'm in the midst of this right now. It's like, my body is not responding the same way. I feel like my endurance is tanked you know, it's like my skin, like see my muscles like atrophying before my eyes, but my inclination is like, I want, I have to work harder, right? Like I have to keep doing the same things that I've been doing and do more. Um, whereas maybe I need to kind of step back a second, um, and recognize these changes are happening and then maybe adjust some of the things that I'm doing. Maybe it is different type of stimulus that I need, that my body needs at this point, um, in order to make me feel good. Right. So, yeah. So things like I a hundred percent need to be hitting the gym and lifting heavier weights, um, more often than I have been, um, you know, I might need some more higher intensity, uh, bouts of, of exercise and workouts. Um, because as much as I love kind of my slow, long runs, like that's probably not, doing me a whole ton of good at this point. So it's, th so it's things like that, but it's, it's recognizing that these life stages are life stages and they're normal and we go through them and we have to adjust through them. Well, I can tell you that, you know, what you've done through the book and through this conversation is create a, a lot of awareness of, of, as Mike kind of said, like, wow, I never really thought of it, but now that I do, it's like, oh my gosh, how did I not think of that? And then you, and, and also, through the vehicle of sports, it's making me, as I'm sitting here, question not just you know the 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 female high school soccer player, but every female that I'm going to come in contact with and give any advice in terms of health, wellness, fitness, nutrition, to say that you know I, I can't just make blanket statements because what may work for me is, is is there's a very good chance it may not work for you because of the, those differences and and whether it's uh, whether it's nutritional stuff, whether it's training volume, whether it's training uh, modalities, any any of those things, we really need to take a closer look and, and say that we can't assume that everybody's going to respond to this the same. Um, and so, you know, I want to thank you for that and kind of drawing our attention to that and and, and almost making us, you know, it, it, at the end of a good conversation, we do this podcast, you, you get done. And Mike, I, I know you feel the same. We get there and like, 
just when I thought I knew stuff. <laughs> now I'm, I'm sitting here going, I got to study more because I'm an idiot. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it was funny because my husband would read like early drafts of my chapters and stuff. And every time like he'd like come out of his room, he's like, what is that? Like, what is this? Like, how oh, I don't, you know, well, how, I didn't know this. I'm like, yeah, me neither. <laughs> well, the, the book is great. I highly recommend it. It's called Up to Speed. It's going to be coming out right about the time that this, this episode is released. So um, you know, make sure that you look for that, but, but tell us, uh, in addition to the book, any other things that's new and exciting that you're working on, Christine? Um, I, so I have, I mean, right now it's mostly book focus stuff. So doing some events in New York and San Francisco and Boston coming up, um, possibly some other events on, in the future. Um, but yeah, but just kind of continuing to write on, on topics related to women and sports performance and, you know, health in general, because yeah, for me, this is, this is the piece. I, I just love talking about it. I love talking to the researchers and learning a little bit more and then hopefully trying to translate that information. Um, so it doesn't sound like it comes from an, you know, a scientific journal <laughs> and so that people can kind of understand a little bit better. Well, we appreciate your effort and your work, and it is obviously much, much needed. Um, and we want to thank everyone out there, you, the listener, for, for tuning in. And this has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets, as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the principles of program design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.